he was angry. And I think he was he was angry because he he felt like he lost his family and was stuck with us. You're listening to This Is Home. This is home. This is home. A podcast about families. We're gonna be allowed to cry. Brought together through unlikely circumstances. We were lost. There was a few weeks where we didn't know where we would live. And the remarkable relationships they forge. I'm Erica Gerard. And I'm Emily Skihan. What does home mean to you? What does home mean to me? How's my jerk answer? A hammock? Your apartment in Los Feliz. Atwater, let's go. Oh, in Atwater, sorry. Home means safety. Home means comfort. What did the idea home mean to you? Home is not necessarily a building, but the people who you can be around and feel like you can laugh and cry or be silly or talk to at any hours of the day or night. This is Jill Lindstrom. I was one of four children and growing up, um, my father worked for the airlines and my mom was home all the time, didn't hold a job um, outside of the home. Jill and her husband, Joe, live in Tempe, Arizona, and they have a big family. I know this because I grew up in the same neighborhood as the Lindstroms. Their oldest daughter, Chrissy, and I have been friends since childhood. And even as a kid, it always seemed to me that Jill was meant to be a mom. I think from when I was really little, I wanted to have kids. I wanted to be married, and I wanted to have the dogs. That's what I wanted from really very young. So... It was pretty much exactly how I dreamed it would be. You know, there was, of course, ups and downs and times when it didn't look like that. But overall, that's what I created, exactly what I wanted, which was a long-term marriage with a lot of kids and a lot of animals and a lot of chaos from time to time. Jill had four children and often looked after the neighborhood kids as well. One neighbor, a single mom who lived across the street, also had kids the same age as Jill's, twins. And they would come and play at Jill's house every day. This went on for years. Until one day, Jill received some news that would set her on a new path and change her life forever. I found out that the kids were taken away from their mother that they had been abused, pretty severely abused, for the last year or so by the mother's boyfriend. They were living with a foster mom. And I was so shocked. I was, how could this happen? How could I see these boys every single day and not know that something was terribly wrong? And it was my first experience with kids and foster care. So then flash forward another year, I see something on the news or something on TV about being a CASA. And they say in their ads to recruit people, they say what the job of the CASA is, is to develop a relationship with the child and that children are taken suddenly, which was certainly true with these kids, and that sometimes they just need to see a a sibling because they can't be placed together or they just need to see a friend. And so the job of the CASA, as what I understood it at the time, was they just need sometimes to have somebody pick them up, take them to see a friend so that they can play, and bring them back. 
just so they can have some sense of normalcy once into their lives that have been totally disrupted. So, and since I had this experience with these twins, I thought I could do this. So I signed up. Jill became a CASA, a court-appointed special advocate. But pretty quickly into the process, she realized that the job wasn't anything like she thought it would be. It was not that simple that you pick up a child, drop them off at a friend's house, and pick them up. I mean, that's kind of what I thought was going to happen. And I think I believed that, like this set of kids that lived across the street, that foster care is like a temporary thing. So you just have to make this connection until the children are reunited with family and placed somewhere safe, because that was what my first introduction to foster care was. So I thought it was going to be a short-term thing and that I could handle it. When I became a CASA, I realized kids who have a court-appointed advocate are kids who are in a really bad place, are kids who do not have family to swoop in and take them to safety. So these kids, my very first CASA case that I took, I remained his CASA until he was 18. So I was his CASA for 10 years. So these kids stayed in our lives. So I was a CASA for a a very long time, never considered foster care. What happened was I took John and his brothers as a CASA case. John was a five-year-old little boy who, along with his two younger brothers, became one of Jill's CASA cases. They were put into foster care after being taken away from their mother, a teenage girl who struggled with drugs and alcohol and left the three boys at a party one night and never came back. Once in the care of the state, the plan was to eventually have the boys transferred over to live with family in California. But in the meanwhile, they would stay in foster care. Some time goes by, and one day Jill is told that the boys can no longer stay with their foster mom. They needed to be moved to a different foster family because of some legal technicality. The judge sent the youngest boys to California, but five-year-old John was to stay put in Arizona for a while longer. He was still having regular visits with his biological mom. But the problem was, there was nowhere for John to live. I was not happy with the choices they were coming up with for where does John go. So my husband and I decided that we were already involved in John's, ha- in John's life. John already knew the other kids. This was only going to be a temporary thing because John was going to join his brothers in California. So it wasn't till this came up with John that we really felt like John living with us temporarily would be a much better choice than John moving into another foster home where he didn't know anybody. John moved in with the Lindstroms, and they became his foster parents. They would take care of him until he could either be safely reunited with his mother or with his brothers in California. Things were rolling along, and John started becoming a part of the Lindstrom family. His siblings in California were also adjusting well, and Jill often took John over to visit them. But there was one big area that wasn't going well, his visits with his biological mother. Mom eventually drops him off at a park, leaves, and is not heard from. Mom has taken off and disappeared, So they sever her parental rights, 
and they start towards the grandparents in California getting guardianship and moving John there. As they go through that process, they do a paternity test, and they discover that John is not biologically related to this family at all. John wasn't related one bit to the grandparents that he was supposed to go live with. But they were good people, and they still wanted John. So the caseworkers are now trying to figure out what they have to do to let John move to California with these people who he is not related to. During that process, John is still with us, and we're still taking him over for visits. So we take John. I fly over with John for a visit, and um, I take John to the grandma's house, drop him off, which is what the procedure was. One particular weekend, I go over there, I drop John off, I go to visit a friend, and then I get this panic phone call from the grandmother, and she's extremely upset, and she says, you need to come, you need to come, they took John. So John's biological mother showed up at grandmother's house. The mother somehow finds out that John is there, makes threats to the grandmother, and takes John. John willingly goes with her. She swoops in and she takes him. She swoops in with these people who are very mean and very upsetting to the other boys and the grandparents. Jill goes to the police to file a missing child report. And she brings paperwork to show that John had permission to be with her and the grandmother and that John's mother's rights had been severed. The police don't really appear to be doing anything because he's a missing child that was taken by his mother, which I guess is low priority. John is gone, and nobody knew where he was. One week goes by, nothing. Two weeks go by, and still nothing. When finally... Jill receives a call from the grandmother, who says that John has been found. A neighbor was walking by in a park and recognized him. It was happy news. Jill collected the paperwork, picked him up, and brought him back home with her in Arizona. But after that experience, the grandmother decided that she no longer wanted to have custody of John, because she never wanted to relive what happened. She was convinced that the mother would come and do it again, and that he wouldn't be safe with them. So, John's case goes back to the courts. John at that time was six, and they were going to classify him as unadoptable, that he was now an unadoptable child. Why would he be unadoptable? Because he had a lot of behavior issues at five. Now he, and rightfully so, he was separated from his brother's It was not a good situation. He had come from an abusive place. A lot of times there's no good answers for these kids. There's not people banging down the doors to take children who are in John's spot. There was no good choices. Nobody was coming up with good choices. And so then my husband and I decided, well, we'll let John stay with us until they come up with a good choice. So John was doing okay with us. John was happy with us, so John was going to stay with us until the good choice came up. And as we all know, there was no good choice. 
And there was a whole lot of praying, God, bring the right family for John. Bring the right family for John. And then I felt like God was answering and saying, he is already with the family. Jill and her husband sat down with their kids and asked them what they thought about making John a permanent member of the family. They were all for it. At this point, they were old enough to have a basic understanding of what was going on in John's life. And John had already been living with us, so it was a pretty easy... The answers were, well, is he going to have to do chores? Does he have to do chores like us? Coming up, Jill's biological children weigh in on life with their newly adopted brother. There's always conflict because there's conflict. But with John, there was it was different. It wasn't like little mini temper tantrums. It was huge blowouts. So the woman you just heard is Christina Lindstrom, John's oldest sibling who also happens to be a producer on this podcast. You know, the one I said I was friends with growing up. So how old were you and Chrissy when John moved in? We were in high school. And I remember always thinking that Chrissy had more siblings than anyone I knew. And then one day she said that they were going to adopt another one. And I was like, wow, really? Another one? But then I met John, and he was like the cutest little kid. He had these eyelashes that went on for days. But that was most of what I knew about the situation. There was a cute kid, adopted, long eyelashes, and a boatload of siblings. So you didn't know about all the challenges they were having integrating John into the family? I remember a bit of that, yes. There were issues with John at school, And I remember Chrissy's mom always was really frustrated. And I also remember that Jill and her husband were having some marital strain. But I never had a sense of what it was like for the siblings having another brother come into the family. So talking to Chrissy and her brother Tyler for this episode was really interesting for me. Yeah, you know, I think so many of the stories we hear about foster care... They really focus on the foster parents, people like Jill. I hear a lot of what it's like to try and parent a foster kid. And foster kid voices aren't well represented. I mean, they're out there, but I hear less of them. But honestly, I can't think of a single time I've heard about the experience of foster care siblings. Yes, and if parents feel unprepared, I think it's safe to say that siblings feel even more unprepared because they don't have the benefit of maturity. So Chrissy, her two brothers, Tyler and Joel, her sister, Bethany, they were all swept up into this new family dynamic. Here's my conversation with Chrissy. She's cooking in the kitchen, so there's times when the audio sounds a bit distant. So it was was like normal things somehow became exacerbated with John. In my memory, what could have been seen as minor incidences ended up becoming almost traumatic, both for him and for the people that were in his life and trying to 
um, appease him or comfort him in some way because he was incapable of being comforted. There was one story in particular that I remember. He tried to jump out of the moving car on the freeway and she pulled over and called the police. Oh my God. She pulled over, called the police. They ended up closing off the freeway. So it caused this huge traffic jam. I remember John saying like, he had this experience as soon as he had calmed down, like as soon as he wasn't, you know, trying to jump out of a moving car at 70 miles an hour on the freeway, that he had this thought of like, I did this. Like I caused all these fire trucks and ambulance to be here. I caused the freeway to like be blocked off for an afternoon. He's like, I did that. Like, that's crazy. What was I thinking? Chrissy says that part of the reason they thought the transition was going to be easier was because her mom was John's casa for years before he started living with them. They knew him. He had been in and out of their house for a long time, and he and Jill had a strong relationship. So when it turned out that Jill was the one that John had the most conflict with, it was surprising. He fought my mom harder than absolutely anyone. Why? I don't know, man. I don't know. He very pointedly started calling my, my dad, dad, pretty early on, and very pointedly never called my mom, mom, until he was much older. Um, was that hurtful for her? Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. And we all knew it was hurtful for her, and so I think we all felt protective of her, and acknowledging that as part of his process and whatever, but was, I think, also just had this opinion of, well, that kind of sucks, <laughs> you know? What was the siblings' relationship with him? Do you think that they accepted him immediately? I remember there being lots of conflict between John and Tyler when John first started living with us during that first year that I was there or whatever because um, I just felt like Tyler was the baby of the family at the time and he had a really hard time giving up that post of being the youngest kid. So he resented John coming into the family? I think so. Tyler was also 10 years old, so it's not like he had the benefit of having this really adult perspective about it. And I just remember him being really annoyed with John and them like bickering amongst each other and whatever. Some of it ended up being just really comical and funny, just like, you know, any 10-year-old, like any young boys getting into arguments and whatever. But I felt like I could tell that Tyler had a little bit of a hard time. We've never talked about it, though, so I could have been misreading the situation, but it, that seemed to me to be the case, that if anyone had had any issue with it with John when John moved in or had a harder time adjusting, it was Tyler. I was interested to hear Tyler's perspective on John coming into the family, and so I asked Chrissy if we could give him a call, and she agreed. As a warning, the conversation you're about to hear has some profanity. Here's Tyler. I remember... I don't know, it's kind of strange looking back at it, because I feel like me and John were like, we're always at each other's throats. John didn't help himself with a lot of situations. I always thought that he, like, tried to get on my nerves purposely. Like I said, until I was outside of high school, I thought John was so annoying. And I just thought, I mean, maybe that was looking back. Maybe he was trying to get my attention or, or something, but... I mean, he was just so there, like, all the time. I was always getting into shit with my parents or trying, or just doing one thing or another. Do you think that you could have done anything differently to have made the circumstances better growing up? 
or do you think your family could have? I don't know. I think I could have definitely. As far as my parents, I don't think, I think they did everything that they could. I mean, there's probably things they would say that they could have done differently. But I mean, I think they probably made the best decisions that they could with the information that they had. But I know, looking back at me, there were times when I was probably in a freshman or sophomore in high school, and I would just pick on John like like just another sibling. But, I mean, I would pick on him and pick on him until I knew I could get him to, like, break just because I was being a dickhead. And John would cuss, and I was never allowed to cuss when I was growing up. Yeah, and keep in mind, John was five years old at the time, and he, wow. he had a dirty little mouth. Yes, and John would, so there would be times where I would try and get him to cuss so he would get in trouble, and I wouldn't, even if I was the instigator. And so, there, like, I would lock him outside, and then he would flip me off, and then I would go to mom and dad and be like, John, just flip me off. Or like, there was one time, and I was like picking on him, and he was like, you're a fucking asshole, and I was like, oh shit. <laughs> What a little shit you were. <laughs> I was totally a little shit. <laughs> Some of the antics between the siblings were funny, especially because John was such a ridiculously cute little boy. But his behavior only became more damaging and dangerous as he grew older, both to himself and to those around him. Here's Jill. He was angry, and he was not a good student. So... And like I said, for many reasons, John had a right to be angry. But then John got big enough where he realized if I took him to counseling, he did not have to talk. So he would just sit there and not say anything. You know, John realized that it was within his power to take a test at school and not answer one question. That he started to realize he could... And I think he was was angry because he... He felt like he lost his family and was stuck with us. He couldn't really verbalize it. And again, you don't know what it is, but as he got older and as he decided, like all kids do, that I should be doing this for myself or I don't want to be here, you know, so I'm not going to cooperate. John just took it to a limit farther than other kids do. He would go to school, and um, he would walk in the, in the front door, go to his classroom, and walk out the back door. He wouldn't go. He wouldn't show up. And I would drop him off at school, and I would get to work, and they'd call, and they'd say, John's not at school today. Is he sick? And he decided he didn't like that school. He didn't want to be there. So we would have to go and find him. You know, he would decide he didn't like that teacher, so he would just write obscenities on the papers instead of making any attempt to fill them out. Just really belligerent, which eventually led him to go to a year in military school because he was not cooperating. Military school was Lyman Ward Military Academy in Alabama. John was there for seventh and eighth grade. Following this, he attended three different high schools in Arizona, including the public high school down the street from his childhood home, that he wanted to go to so badly, but was expelled from in less than a year. Eventually, 
he earned his diploma from Canyon State in Arizona, a school classified as a group home placement for youth in child protective services. During the 12 years of John's schooling, the Lindstroms, all of them, struggled. Jill and her husband were at a loss for what was best for their adopted son. And many of the Lindstrom kids were nervous for John's future and his relationship with the rest of the family, which had never ceased to be rocky. On part two of Becoming a Lindstrom, we'll hear from the five-year-old kid with the dirty little mouth himself, John. It's been 20 years since John first met the Lindstrom family. We'll hear his perspective on all of this, including those early years in foster care, what it was like acclimating to a new family, and what his relationship is like with them now. Thanks for listening to This Is Home. We're so excited you're joining us in exploring all of the delicate, lovely, and messy parts of family. Huge thanks to the Lindstrom family for letting us launch with their story. This Is Home is Erica Gerard, Emily Skihan, and Christina Lindstrom. Our sound engineer is Juan Diego Borda at Harmonix Studios. Music design by Jonathan Mannis. Logo and site design by Lane Carlsness at Broadsheet Design. We want to hear from you. Leave us your comments, questions, or stories about family by emailing us at hello at thisishomepodcast.org or on Facebook and Twitter at thisishomecast. Our website is thisishomepodcast.org. Till next time, hug your loved ones.